Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Now we gather due to a selfish man's injured pride and the outrage of supporters who he has deliberately misinformed for the past two months and stirred to action this very morning. What happened here today was an insurrection incited by the President of the United States. Those who choose to continue to support his dangerous gambit by objecting to the results of a legitimate democratic election will forever be seen as being complicit in an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Who remain insistent on an audit in order to satisfy the many people who believe that the election was stolen? I'd offer this perspective. No congressional audit is ever going to convince these voters, particularly when the president will continue to say that the election was stolen. The best way we can show respect for the voters who were upset is by telling them the truth. That was the voice of U.S. Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, and he was speaking the night of January 6, 2021, when the U.S. Congress was responsible for counting the electoral votes from the states and the District of Columbia. He was speaking to his Senate colleagues as they considered objections raised to counting electoral votes from states that incumbent Donald Trump had lost to Joe Biden. And he was speaking after the security of the Capitol building had been breached by a mob of rioters who seemed committed to overturning Biden's election. Members of Congress and staff and Vice President Pence were rushed out of the House and Senate chambers and into safe locations, and the rioters' conduct resulted in property damage and the death of at least five people. Notably, President Trump had spoken to the rioters just before they went to the Capitol. He encouraged them to go. Even though he returned to the White House, he said, We're going to the Capitol. And, quote, we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country, end quote. In the wake of the rampage, House Democrats have drafted an article of impeachment against Trump for incitement to insurrection. And so Donald Trump is on the verge of being impeached for the second time. What are the prospects of removing him? What kinds of political calculations are likely to factor into the thinking of members of Congress? What's at stake in the process apart from Trump's individual fate? These are the kinds of questions I recently discussed with Sarah Bender. Bender is professor of political science at the George Washington University and also senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. She specializes in Congress and legislative politics. She's also an associate editor of the Washington Post's Monkey Cage blog. She and I recently discussed impeachment, as well as other timely topics, especially ones related to the new, 
very slim, Democratic majority in the Senate. I now share a conversation in this episode, which is titled, Conviction. Uh, I was a history major uh, in college. Uh, I used to say, I probably shouldn't say this, lest political scientists hear me say this, but I used to say, why take a political science class when you can take a related history class uh, instead, Um, which I have not actually repeated in the 35 plus years since I left college. (laughs) college. But um, I studied American history. Uh, We also used to say that was back then, the 1980s, it was a very popular major. Most of my uh, classmates studied history. Uh, We used to say that everybody else knew what they wanted to study. Uh, That was me. Uh, Somehow I ended up in Washington, D.C. after college looking for a job, and I ended up on Capitol Hill. Uh, working for a member of Congress who was uh, Lee Hamilton from Southern Indiana, who was uh, first elected about a week before I was born. Uh, he was a bit of an institution then and uh, still still really is. So um, I ended up working on the Hill. Those jobs, people don't usually stay very long or they stay their lifetime. And I decided that a lifetime probably wasn't uh, going to work for me. So I went off to grad school. Um, I wanted to go to forestry school to, to do environmental studies. We, they used to call it forestry school. Uh, and I didn't get in, but yeah. I did get into cold science. And here it, it worked out great. <laughs> I'm not going to hold it against forestry schools across America. Um, so the neat thing about studying Congress, I would say that most of the folks out there who study Congress, many of them have not spent uh, time in Congress, uh, which is fine. Um, but I would say that's what excites me most is having some not to say too much here, pat myself on the back, but some sort of spidey sense of what's going on in the Hill yep. that you get from being there and soaking it up. Yeah, I um, have a friend and colleague uh, here at the college where I teach who um, uh, decades ago worked in the office of uh, Senator Daniel Patrick uh, Moynihan. And so I, I love having friends and colleagues and podcast guests uh, who not only study Congress, but work there because it means I'm one degree of separation away from some really interesting folks. Uh, And so now I can add Lee Hamilton to the list. Uh, But um, I want to talk about where we are as a country today on uh, Monday, January 11th. But before I talk about where we are and where we're headed, I want to talk about where we were, uh, particularly last Wednesday, uh, a day that will uh, uh, live in fame and infamy uh, for quite some time. And I'm actually looking um, on my computer screen at a monkey cage analysis that you wrote. And I don't know if you write the headlines, but the, the, uh, the headline may not have aged all that well. The headline is uh, what to expect when Congress counts the electoral college votes on Wednesday. That part's fine. But then the subtitle is, yes, there might be procedural skirmishing but old rules are hard to break. Uh, and obviously, we saw much more than procedural uh, skirmishing uh, last week. Uh, the day culminated, well, uh, in the afternoon, there was violence. Uh, but ultimately, uh, Congress uh, managed, despite the disruption that came from that violence, to get back to work, to finish uh, counting uh, the votes, and to confirm uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as uh, our next president and vice president, respectively. I want to talk about some uh, thinking and writing you've done about the decision that some members of Congress made, even though their role is simply to count the votes. Some of them 
objected uh, to uh, the slates of electors from such states as Arizona and Pennsylvania, and uh, actually ultimately voted uh, not to certify uh, those. You've reported a relationship that you've uh, found between how, I would say, Trumpy, a given uh, GOP uh, House member's district uh, was in 2016, in more precise terms, uh, the percentage of the of the vote that Trump carried in 2016, you've shown that that correlated with the likelihood uh, that a given member would vote to challenge uh, the Arizona and Pennsylvania electoral votes. So the Trumpier the district, the more likely uh, that representative was to vote to challenge uh, that slate of electors. One thing, one of the things I'm curious about is assuming that the House actually votes on articles of impeachment. And so as we sit here today, the House has just announced uh, an article of impeachment for incitement of insurrection. Would you expect, and I know political scientists love it when they're asked to forecast, but would you expect uh, a similar uh, relationship? I guess it would be a negative relationship where the Trumpier, the House members uh, district, uh, the less likely they are to vote for that article of of impeachment. So that, that's a great question, and it's something of uh, folks who are around town are uh, wondering about for sure. And I, I think I would uh, approach the question this way. Um, first, from that relationship between the vote on the electoral slates and the, the, the strength of opinion back home about Trump, I think it's important to keep in mind that those votes were cast after the day of violence, after the day of violence, and which just as as terrible as the events of the day were, uh, and I think we're all used to being shocked by things during the Trump years, but that was just another level of shock. There were a few exceptions, right? Uh, An important one, perhaps, the Senator Leffler, who just lost the day before, she stood up uh, taken back, she said, look, now's, that's, that's then, no more. And I, I think that's important, not just for affirming there's some humanity <laughs> there in her, but sever the electoral bonds. That's, that's it for her, right? She has no reason to look back to those Georgia voters to, to think about what is expected of her or how she wants to signal them for what she stands for. But in the House, keep in mind, we have those 140 plus members who voted not just once, but then twice uh, to do that. And that suggests to me that, first of all, this wasn't a vote immediately that they would go, I voted for them in the morning and then violence grow out. And now I can claim to, to, to regret that vote. They were not regretting that vote. And that suggests to me that when the question of impeachment comes up, it's possible we'll still be in that same world where lawmakers are looking back over their shoulders and thinking about what's acceptable to voters, uh, my party base back home. Now, that would suggest we might replicate the type of vote we just saw. Uh, The alternative is that some sort of party dynamic kicks in, right, where leaders are able to polarize the vote enough to suggest that Democrats are for it. It's just a partisan move. And so we have to be against it. And that would suggest maybe you'd see, you know, a a five, 10, a dozen House members vote uh, to impeach, but maybe not. Although, unless I'm mistaken, it's not clear that the GOP leadership 
at least last week, was unified. So McConnell and Kevin McCarthy took two very different uh, approaches. I wonder if you think we might see similar fractures among the GOP leadership uh, on this article of impeachment. So uh, that may well be. And I believe that it may be that the split across that Republican Party leadership, right, with Liz Cheney, who's sort of number three versus number one and two, Scalise and McCarthy, that split might help account for why there was a not a majority, but a sizable, right? A third to 40%, um, basically upholding uh, those certified votes. Um, so, and, and lawmakers do take signals from leaders, but they also take signals from back home. So the bottom line is we don't really know, but we could ima- I could imagine a replication of those alignments. Trumpy folks uh, sticking with them uh, and those uh, who in a little more mixed districts uh, might be thinking uh, thinking differently. Uh, but I would al- I also say is uh, there'll be at least a week here between uh, the events of Wednesday, the violence of Wednesday, and when they vote on, likely vote on impeachment. And since then, you know, the, the story's changing um, and this gets into other people's fields in mind, but the, the, the images on Wednesday from outside the Capitol, which were on CNN and so forth, um, were abhor- abhorrent, but not nearly compelled to the, to the, the videos we've seen since then. And just, uh, just flooring, flooring these of hostility and violence against police and, and, uh, and others. So the question, does that you know, provide a basis for those members to change their minds? Either, either, either way. Yeah, the video that I saw just a day or so ago of the dozen or so officers in riot gear who were trapped in this enclosed space with at least a hundred. It's hard to tell how many because the crowd just continued outside pressing in against them. And at one point, a hand comes in and is grabbing the face mask of one of uh, the officers who is seems to be caught between a door and and is screaming um um like this is someone in riot gear who like, normally i think swat team they're in charge and he's just screaming help uh, and so it's just a harrowing video so it does remain to be seen how the story will will change over time and what impact that will have and speaking of timing i've seen that house uh majority whip uh, james clyburn has indicated that if the articles of impeachment are improved, are approved in the house the house majority may delay sending the articles over to the senate uh for 100 days to provide um a new biden administration 100 days to get cabinet officials confirmed for example um i will note that i saw just today uh steny hoyer so i believe house majority leader um was pushing back on that but Given that this possibility has been raised, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, um, again, sorry to put you in the role of forecasting, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on the potential impact of that delay. It would seem to me, for example, that uh, that much time might uh, dissipate uh, support for uh, conviction in the Senate. But I wonder what your thoughts are. Yeah, so I think it's a, well, first, it's a reminder that the impeachment process, even though grounded in the Constitution, it is still a political process and political calculation comes into play uh, through, it's permeated by by the politics. Uh, I could see the argument uh, almost really all the way. One is your uh, proposal that will 
perhaps the, the attention and excitement and the the the, mag, the the magnitude of the events of last week, um, perhaps that dissipates over a longer period. And that's probably certainly the case, even when we see more, inevitably see more violence along the way. On the other hand, it, it, it does, that type of delay does create some more distance uh, between Trump and holding office and Trump and his position in the Republican Party. And perhaps we don't really know what happens in that three, four month period, right? Whether he finds a way to seize and hold on to attention or, or not. So I, I'm not, again, I don't know what will happen. I could imagine pressure on uh, House Democrats to send it over to the Senate, lest they be accused of, uh, well, if this is so dire, why aren't you, why are you holding on to it? And my hunch is that that argument wins the day and then becomes a problem for um, the incoming majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, who I think to, uh, to get around the structure imposed by impeachment rules that really demand the Senate to take it up within a day, it, I think they'll need unanimous, they'll need all 100 senators to come up with another schedule. Um, so we'll see, but at, at the at the end of the day, we just can't extract the the politics, uh, the competing politics here uh, within the parties, but also between the parties over what exactly is going to happen. Along with Stephen Smith. In the late 1990s, you wrote a piece about the Clinton impeachment in which you suggested that the process that uh, characterized or or the the features characterizing that impeachment process served to undermine or may have undermined the legitimacy and credibility of the impeachment process uh, more generally. And, And that was a reminder that in any given impeachment, what's at stake is not only the fate of that particular president, but the uh, reputation, the credibility of the process itself. As we consider the impeachment that seems imminent here, where you wouldn't have a lengthy uh, investigation in the House, but rather it would seem as if in a day or two, we would have a vote on the articles of impeachment. So if you have what could be characterized by uh, critics, especially Republicans, as a rushed process in the House, followed by potentially uh, a delay that would be easily characterized as politically motivated. I I could see arguments that this process might also have an adverse impact on the credibility and legitimacy of of impeachment as a general process. And I say that as someone who supports impeachment of this president. Mm -hmm. But what are your thoughts on the ways in which the credibility and legitimacy of the impeachment process uh, are at stake here? So it's a a good question. And so the the dilemma here in in part is that whenever Congress does something one way or a chamber does something one way, it it creates a precedent for a future party or the same party in a same or similar or not at all similar situation. But because one party has done it, it becomes, uh, it, it lowers the political cost to the next party who wants to do it, even though the situations may not be analogous. And so you and I can look at uh, the rush, the quote unquote rush to judgment this time and say it is 
clear as day that the, the president violated his oath of office to, you know, take care to, to execute the laws um, and, and, uh, and not to instigate a, a violent mob. However, the argument then would be uh, in 20 years down the line or three years down the line or right that uh, the Republican Party would find an, what they say would be the precedent. Well, you did it once, so we're going to turn on a dime and do it ourselves. And that's the down the downside is that the 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 speed here reduces the ability of the house to 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 nail down the things we don't know yet but will be coming out in terms of the complicity of the president um, and his allies in generating the mob uh, and what what the strategy to the extent there was a strategy like what it what it was um, but weighing that against the question of accountability and the fleetingness of like what's left of his 10 days in office. And I think that may be behind some of the disagreements between amongst Democrats about what the appropriate uh, accountability mechanism is. He, is it here? Is it just a censure majority vote in both chambers? Uh, and my hunch is not depending on who's in control of the Senate. Can it get on the floor? Trump would be censored, and and that that would at least kind of protect the impeachment uh, process uh, from the future misuse of it. But then leaves open the question that have you really held Trump or tried to hold Trump truly accountable for what went on last week? And unless I'm mistaken, mere censure would be insufficient to uh, allow for a vote to disqualify Trump from future service in federal office? Yeah, when he, he would need to be convicted uh, uh, under impeachment and then the added uh, clause, essentially, of a punishment of uh, no more running for office again. One of the things that you've also written about is the, the scope of, uh, of impeachment. Um, uh, at one point, um, actually, in December of 2019, uh, you suggested that a, quote, skinny uh, impeachment, so a very um, uh, an impeachment that's uh, narrow in its scope, uh, reflected division among Democrats, particularly between those elected from uh, safe districts. So I would assume that uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Maxine Waters would be examples of Democrats from safe districts. Um, so you saw the skinniness of the impeachment as potentially reflective of divisions between those Democrats or Democrats like those and ones from swing districts uh, like uh, Alyssa Slotkin uh, from uh, Michigan or uh, I'm in Maine. I I view Jared Golden in the second district of Maine is also coming from a swing district. In this case where there's, we've got a single article of impeachment and the article mentions Trump's ongoing efforts to uh, uh, delegitimize and overturn the election. It mentions uh, at least one of the phone calls that Trump made to Georgia officials. But even though it mentions that, as I read it, that's not what the article of impeachment is. Uh, uh, that's not the misconduct that is central to the article of impeachment. It is the incitement uh, of insurrection. I wonder if you would agree with my premise that this is a pretty skinny uh, impeachment. You, it could, you could imagine a much uh, broader um one that, for, for example, has a second article of impeachment that's about that phone call uh, to Raffensperger uh, and the other Georgia officials who are on the line. Um, so would you agree that this is a pretty narrow or skinny impeachment? 
And if so, would you also uh, interpret that as indicative of uh, uh, division within the Democratic caucus? So it does strike me as skinny and in, in part, as we've been talking about, given the, the context of the timing uh, here and what's possible, given that we're at the, the end of the president's term, it, it likely does. And I didn't get a chance. I think uh, I think there was a Omar. Uh, I, I think there, there were rival uh, impeachment articles, which didn't get a, a chance to take a look at. Um, but it does strike me both as a as a matter of uh, go, getting to the core of what is going to get uh, that bare majority, if not essentially they want all the Democrats. Um, but it also is, I think, a thinking about what's most likely to check Republican votes and the, the clearly the the, the violence, uh, the insurrection uh, is the core of what Republicans, those who have broken from. Trump, what has moved them seemingly to, to break f- from him. And if it maximizes the chances of securing any Republican support, if not in the House, uh, but in the Senate, then my, my hunch is that it's, it's that dynamic as well that's driving uh, the nature of how they're approaching the, the narrowness here. Well, let's, we've talked a lot about the House. Let's talk a bit more about uh, the Senate. I wonder if that same sort of relationship that you documented in the House where the Trumpiness of the district uh, predicted uh, the likelihood of voting to over to, to, to not certify the electors from Arizona and Pennsylvania. I wonder if when thinking about the Trumpiness of a particular state, if that relationship might be relatively weak in the Senate, um, in part because the terms are longer in the Senate. Uh, and so the time for at least uh, two thirds of the Senate, they have more than two years before their next election. Whereas in the house, they all are going to be facing reelection in two years if they decide to run for reelection. But also the timing is such that we're just coming off the heels uh, of the election. And so I wonder if this is a moment where those kinds of concerns about constituents stances might be minimized. So, so I, I think there are a number of things which you've really tapped on here about why it seems, I mean, I hesitate to give them too, too much credit, but why the senators seem to have risen to the, the occasion here uh, to make that break with, with the president who they've been very tightly uh, connected to. Um, some of it is ambition, presidential ambition. Clearly that uh, Ted Cruz, Josh, Josh Hawley, <laughs> right? They're just sort of like uh, outflanking each other to try to get the who's going to hold hold the banner here. So that's that seems to be something, uh, some positioning for 2024. That's clearly pushing them, pulling them that way. Um, the six year term, I think, has something to do with it, but also the nature of these states, even red states that send two red senators. Um, there's more obviously ideological and demographic uh, diversity within states than there is compared to most of these uh, hardcore red districts. And so it, it, it may on something issue like this temper, uh, temper those, those party ties. Um, I would just, despite. If I could just jump in, would, when I think about Utah, where you have Mike Lee and Mitt Romney, Mm -hmm. would, would the contrast between the two of them be an example of the kind of diversity that you just referred to? Um, I had more in mind. So if you're the senator from, 
we're running out of uh, swing state or, or, or well, Collins isn't the best example because she's just come off her election, um, but she would be emblematic of uh, that tie between that tug between Republicans and Democrats in, in a sort of swingy state, even though it's a blue, yeah. <laughs> a blue, a blue state. Um, I think the one thing to keep in mind about the, the structure of the Senate and why it might matter here is only a, and maybe this is your point that only a third of the Senate is up for re-election, but but that also means that some senators have never been on the ballot with Trump, yep. um, and and we didn't see a lot of splits from Trump over the over uh, the course of the Trump presidency. Um, but you can imagine on an issue where uh, there's an overwhelming uh, public. It would be easy for them to justify breaking from Trump. It might be especially so for those um, who either aren't running again for six years or have just come off or um, they don't feel as tightly tied uh, to Trump uh, as some of their others. And I think it made a difference that McConnell and Blunt, the two uh, Republican leaders in Toon, uh, number three uh, in Cornyn, I, I think it made a difference uh, that that they were um, uh, stuck with uh, the decision to up, not not to challenge uh, challenge the win, and it provides some degree of political cover for those rank and file senators. So I want to, in a moment, shift to issues uh, still related to Congress, but other than impeachment. But I have one final admittedly frivolous uh, impeachment question. That question is, as we look ahead to a plausible, to say the least, uh, um, uh, prospect of an impeachment trial, who do you think is dreading it most? Uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, who would be majority leader um, uh, uh, in such a scenario, uh, Susan Collins, who we just mentioned, uh, um, or uh, Chief Justice uh, John Roberts, who presumably would be presiding over this? I would go for door number one. I, I can't imagine that Chuck Schumer had envisioned that this is how he's starting off his 50-50 Senate and, and, uh, and his being majority leader. Um, he faces re-election uh, in two years. Uh, he faces potential of a primary challenge coming from his left. Um, I still recall the stories from 2016 when he would, uh, after the election, he would, the stories were like he emerges from his Brooklyn townhouse or his, his brownstone or whatever, and there's just hordes of people, uh, progressive activists outside his door. And my sense of Schumer uh, throughout the last Congress was him kind of just running to stay, stay ahead, stay ahead of that pack and thrusting him into this situation here. Um, I, I, I think as everyone expected and wanted to see that when the uh, Democrats wanted to see when Biden came into office, that it's t- time to get moving. Uh, it, it's time to devote some resources to securing the ills here from COVID and, and, and elsewhere. And to have to spend the opening of the new Congress on Donald Trump was just um, is not not part of that recipe for turning the corner. As 
as I recall, one of the one of the aspects of McConnell's style of leadership has been uh, a reluctance, um, perhaps even an unwillingness, but you would know better than I, but a reluctance to bring to the floor any bill that did not enjoy majority support within the Republican caucus. I wonder if you would expect Schumer to adopt a similar style or not. So I think a couple of things, because we're in the world of 50-50, it's not even enough just to have a majority of your, that Democratic caucus on board because you can't get anywhere without unanimity unless it's an issue, obviously, where you're going to attract a Lisa Murkowski or a Mitt Romney. And I used to say a Susan Collins, but I'm not not so sure uh, any anymore. So it's you're, really, wait, 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 wait. you're not so sure. She's, I'm not so sure how often she's crossing uh, the line and, and maybe she yeah. is, but it's, it's certainly been uh, her, her colleagues, Murkowski and Romney, who've uh, been quite vocal in the last months about the COVID solutions yeah. and, and so forth. So um, a majority of the majority is not enough these days. In, in my hunches, McConnell was always looking for something that could command a large, large majority of his conference. Um, and, and as you suggested, absent that, things did not go onto the go onto the floor. Um, whether uh, whether McConnell uh, plays obstruction against everything once again, many people believe he will. Um, one thing I just noted from Trent Lott, the old Republican leader, he said, no, today, he said, McConnell perfected the art of uh, opposition, <laughs> uh, but it's time the Senate learned to, to actually do stuff too. <laughs> so that's the old Republican party, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've seen at least one article, it might even have been out of Brookings, I'm not sure, but one article suggesting that at least one senator who is going to gain in influence as a result of this uh, or in this new Congress is uh, Joe Manchin out of West Virginia. I wonder, I'll phrase this as a a two-part question. A, do you agree that Manchin uh, is going to gain influence by virtue of uh, being um, viewed as a a highly likely swing vote? Um, And then B, are there other, uh, senators who may have been overlooked uh, other than the ones you've mentioned, so Murkowski and Romney, as potential swing votes who will thus gain influence? So I think that's what we all have have our uh, eyes on. In, in a 50-50 Senate, every, every lawmaker is king or queen. Right? Um, you could be the pivotal, pivotal vote. Now, we, we often look at uh, Manchin and maybe Kristen Cinema and maybe Hickenlooper knew uh, as folks who aren't quite uh, as to the left, assuming these issues are left, right, which they're not mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we think it's more likely that it would be someone like Manchin to be that 50th senator. The dilemma here is that not only in theory, do you claim the credit, right? Do you want to cement that majority, but you're also exposed, uh, especially someone like Manchin from West Virginia with a very, very Trump, <laughs> Trumpy state. Uh, and in a, in a world of, you know, if you're 51, the 51st senator to sign on, but you need 55 or you need 60, you don't, you don't blame number 
51 or 54, but in a 50-50 Senate, you know precisely who's nailed down uh, that coalition. Mm -hmm. And that may be a position that some senators don't actually want uh, want to be in. Um, So I think it depends on what exactly the agenda looks like. Um, I think we have this notion that uh, Kamala Harris is going to be, uh, uh, you know, breaking tie votes all the time, but, but, but that requires a 50 vote Democratic caucus that's on the same page all the time. And I think we may be, some issues, yes, but I think we may be overestimating uh, how often Democrats come together uh, for for 50 uh, to, to make things happen, right? That we have this notion that Majority coalitions just emerge, but they have to be built vote by vote. Um, so we'll see a lot. We'll certainly see more of that in Democratic majority than we saw under Republican majority. But uh, it will be interesting to see where the, where the fault lines emerge in that Democratic Party in the Senate. We haven't talked except in, except with respect to the Chief Justice's role in uh, presiding over a, uh, over an impeachment trial. We haven't spoken about the Supreme Court, and I know that among liberals there has been some talk that uh, Justice Breyer, who is now the uh, oldest uh, justice uh, in his 80s, that now that we have a Democratic president, and albeit by a very thin margin, uh, a Democratic uh, majority in the Senate that this is the time when it would be prudent for him to retire um, in order to create a vacancy that presumably uh, Biden could fill. That seems to me like sound strategy, although it's a very thin uh, uh, Democratic majority. So it's not as if they can impose their uh, their will. Although I suppose I'm thinking out loud here. Now that the with with Gorsuch, the Supreme Court, even with Supreme Court nominations, the filibuster has been nuked. Correct. Yeah. So they actually would have, if they could marshal uh, a majority, they could actually uh, impose their will. So uh, is that which you would you and I'm not asking you whether you think that Breyer should retire, but does that logic actually make that strategic logic make sense? From the Democrats' perspective, absolutely. Um, I think one thing to keep in mind is that Breyer is one of three Democratic appointees. And so re- replacing him uh, preserves 6-3, but with all due respect to Breyer, a much younger, presumably, uh, justice for a lifetime appointment. Um, so the impact on the court is not immediate, right? Because you haven't you haven't moved the balance uh, on the court versus if one of the Republican appointed uh, justices were to leave in some, fo- in some form or fashion. Um, those are the, you know, the type of appointments that make change, uh, that make change on the court. Um, so, uh, you, and of course, chance events, one, one doesn't know when these vacancies a- occur, but uh, I have no doubt that's a high, high top priority for the Democrats to fill that. Uh, any type of vacancy, but especially one uh, from the six six uh, conservatives, um, high priority for the Democrats. So 
So as we run out of time, my final question takes us back to impeachment. And that is, suppose that the House impeaches and the Senate acquits. I wonder if you have any thoughts on what the political uh, impact might be. uh, Might it, for for example, actually further erode the democratic norms that we might have hoped to see reinforced by holding Trump uh, to account? If he's able to go on TV and proclaim uh, his innocence, proclaim that this vindicates him completely, will that process have actually backfired and it will actually undermine those democratic norms? So you you put your finger on like a, a, a touch tone of uh, the Brookings uh, lunch today are sort of in, inside the institution and the conflicting views about uh, what's 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 the higher higher imperative here. Right. Uh, if is, is the question here one sheerly of accountability. Right. Uh, and even if you think the outcome could be that it could backfire. Right. Either through acquittal or by Trump reclaiming and, you know, so forth and so forth. Should you not exercise accountability from the House push if you're worried about the secondary effects, direct or indirect? Or is are those, or should we not be weighing, are those not the right things to weigh? Is accountability in itself strong enough and imperative enough that the House should do it? Um, or... Do we have this longer view in mind, right? Whereas you said, look, uh, the questions of the, the normative base here, uh, if you're trying to restore democratic norms, and if you think it's possible, you might fuel the fire on the right. Well, then we're several steps back. <laughs> we've, we've lost lost ground. Um, obviously, no right right answer there. But those the sorts of very sort of quick rapid <laughs> fire questions uh, and debates that are uh, all around us for sure um, everywhere. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Sarah Bender for taking the time to talk with me. For more information about Bender and the issues we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where you will see relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you use Twitter and have not been banned from Twitter like our president, you can mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review, or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. To offer financial support for Tatter, find Tatter's page on Patreon, and you can sign up to become a patron. But be aware... If you are currently a student at the college where I teach, I cannot accept your support. But for all others, come on in, the water's just fine. In any case, and as always, thanks for listening, and be well.